Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. Jazz is a 31-year-old, gender non-conforming, femme-identified person. Jazz uses the pronouns they, them, and describes themselves as Black, polyamorous, and pansexual with an active dating life. I want to be super transparent with you for a minute. It's important to me to represent the stories of people of all ages, races, gender identities, body sizes, sexualities, relationship styles, etc. And I work hard behind the scenes to make that happen. In some aspects, I do well. Gender identity, body size, sexuality, and relationship styles are all well represented in these interviews. You may not know that body size is covered because it doesn't come up in every conversation, but I promise you, the shapes and sizes of women in these conversations are pretty representative of the general population. However, I'm still struggling in two areas, age diversity and racial diversity. I've been making a push recently to interview postmenopausal women, and you'll hear more of those voices in the coming months. Getting more voices from women of color remains a challenge. It makes sense. The sexuality of women of color has long been fetishized by the white population. So trusting me, a white woman, to tell your story might be tricky. But if you're a woman of color and you've considered sharing your story, please know that I'm eager to talk with you. My goal is to treat everyone with the dignity and compassion I would want for my own sister or mother or daughter. I'm grateful to the people of color, like Jazz, Michelle, Lena, Terry, Yaz, and others who have been willing to tell their stories. If you're interested in joining them, please send me an email at leah at goodgirlstalkaboutsex. And now... I'm so pleased to introduce Jazz. I am so excited to be talking to you. I've been looking forward to this interview since we set it up. We met uh, earlier this summer at Sex Geek Summer Camp, and um, I just really enjoy your presence in the room, and I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. So thanks for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I've also been looking forward to it. So... I start all of my interviews the same way, which is, what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. I mean, I want to say I was some, some point in elementary school 
And I would get these sort of attacks of pleasure that I didn't really know that's what they were because more or less I would just be daydreaming. Usually I would be walking. Um, so, you know, picture like afternoon time after school sort of thing. I'd be walking home and, or like maybe on the way to school even. And I would just think about someone in particular that I was crushing on super hard. And I would get these like tingly all body, like whooshes of feeling. And I mean, it was great. (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea. Attacks of pleasure. (laughs) I've never heard anybody use that, that phrase before. I mean, it's like, if you have no context and it's like a full body, sudden feeling, it's like, I'm sure there were people my age who had similar experiences who saw it as like a fear response or like, I don't know, needing to like jump and run around the playground. Like who knows, right? Like yeah. that you interpret sensation can be just so different. So when you had those experiences, was it full body? Was it genitally focused? Do you have a recollection of that? Yeah. I mean, it's, and of course it's with my like adult lens and uh, you know, a few decades behind looking back, I would say that it would, it would kind of generally start in pants feelings as I like to call them, <laughs> then radiate outward. And what would feel like the attack part is when it would kind of land somewhere in my chest or like go through my head and I'm doing my best not to like assign any sort of spiritual thing to that because that was not present in my life at that time. But it is kind of uncanny to me that like heart and head were like the next places that I noticed coming out from, from my crotch groinal area. (laughs) Interesting. So at what point did you correlate those in pants feelings that you were having to something that actually was something you might want to express or do something about? Yeah. I mean, I would say that it just was like a couple of grades down the line. I kind of consider myself a late bloomer because I don't feel like I formally thought about my body slash genitals and intimacy sexuality until I was about 13. Like maybe I was sort of starting to think about it at 12, but I wasn't connecting it to my body. It was still very much like this person looks cute to me. I like them, you know, and then Mm -hmm. it would sort of lie uh, lay there. But by the time I was about 13, I noticed like if I was sitting on my hands in school, which is a thing I would do at my desk. And it's like, I became self-conscious without anyone telling me that I needed to. And I was like, what is that about? Huh? Within a few, I would say like a year from there, I was actually, you know, engaging with my own body. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you masturbated? Mm-hmm very vividly because I was like almost 14 years old. So it wasn't, uh, I wasn't like a little, a little person. I was just a a minor tween. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, I mean, that had a lot to do with David Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) A particular movie, um, that all my friends who uh, still connected with me from that time know which movie that is. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just kind of had a special moment by myself. And for 
from there on out, I started to get really interested in repeating the experience because I more or less passed out. Like I climaxed and then was just not there. So it was really intense for you. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was really kind of just following sensation. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing or really like I wasn't thinking about it. I guess there's sort of like a whole parallel conversation about being embodied versus disembodied or um, disassociated. And I definitely am a person who has been disassociated on and off throughout my whole life. So it's kind of funky to think about my first time masturbating and how that was definitely at play, but perhaps in a positive way, you know? So can you talk a little bit more about that distinction that you just brought up about embodied, disembodied, dissociated? Well, I mean, I've spent, I can slash more so when I was younger would do all manner of things without really feeling connected to my body or remembering that I had a body that I was inhabiting. Um, And that wasn't just because I was like nerdy and and reading a lot. It was because of a lot of uh, background in performing arts at a young age and just um, being told how to move my body, being handled by people and just sort of accepting it blanketly and moving through those experiences. That's really interesting. I mean, I've certainly talked to a lot of people who, and I myself have experienced um, that ex- that feeling of disembodied as a result of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but hearing it described as a result of people sort of using your body in a potentially positive way, like as a dancer or as someone on stage, I'd never thought about that that way. And it totally makes sense when you say it. Yeah. And I mean, to clarify, I would say that like the positive disassociation, I think I would more readily associate, (laughs) associate with, um, with ecstatic states, which is what I believe happened to me. Um, the first time I masturbated when it comes to the performing arts and how they deal with people under the age of 18, I have a lot of criticism slash critique and I don't think it was a good thing, but, uh, It's also how my body learned to survive and manage a lot of complex dynamics. So I don't want to like shame disassociation as a subject or the performing arts. I mean, I can leave that to to the pros. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. 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 So. Uh, Well, I am curious to like, can you give us a specific scenario where you experienced this? Because I think this will be a really unfamiliar conversation for a lot of people. Sure. And I mean, like, we can also just throw in the my favorite elephant in the room, which is like anti blackness. And that would be like my gigantic critique of theater, um, particularly like how you bring up people of color in a theater tradition um, that is inherently Eurocentric. But to just bring it home um, with a really like a moment that has stuck with me forever. I had a teacher in my senior year at LaGuardia, the performing arts high school, where I studied drama. And I was in the senior play along with my buds playing, you know, one of five black roles in a 20 cast, you know, production. And um, I had a teacher say in a rehearsal in front of the whole class that I should 
both wear black because I'm black because we were doing a costume lighting check and also that I should sound more black. Mm. They're obviously uh, wildly inappropriate and inaccurate things to say to a human being. And instead of, you know, calling him out on it uh, or just having any kind of reaction, I just stood there. Mm. Um, And that's a type of disassociation. That's a freeze maybe response, you know, and things like that would happen all the time. Worse things would happen to uh, darker skinned folks in the industry. My, my peers, you know, like I also folks are listening. I'm a light skinned mixed race person. And so my experience is never going to be as effed up as a darker skinned person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so if we're talking about things like disassociation and pleasure embodiment where I sit in the world of blackness and where others uh, like me sit are just really never not there. It's Mm -hmm. always part of the experience and influencing the situation. So as long as we're sort of talking about your place uh, in society, let's also bring in the fact that you are gender non-conforming. Yes. Um, So, at what point did you begin to understand that as part of your experience? And and I also want to say here that because this is an experience that I don't have, there may be questions that I ask or language that I use that is not 100% appropriate or because I just don't know. So please feel free to correct me at any point. Thank you. Um, um, yeah. Was that the full question yeah it's like what at what point did gender non-conforming become something that that you were consciously dealing with yeah um timelines and markers are always so fascinating especially when we're talking about the gender spectrum um so i would say official start date was you know around the same time that i started to develop my own sexuality um when i was around 14 or 15 i started Uh, wanting to wear suits and ties and uh, wanting to purposefully appear androgynous. And all of those markers are just, you know, a few ways in which to do that. They were the only ones I knew at the time. And there's a whole, you know, interesting thing about like, what do we see as androgynous? What do we see as gender nonconforming and how often it can skew towards thin and male? Hmm tying in my personal experience with that being a mega Bowie fan and, you know, essentially more or less worshiping very thin white dude. Um, And uh, so like, that's when it all began and it was pretty innocent to me. I don't know. I mean, I was a nineties kid. I was brought up with the, you can be whatever you want. And so I just assumed that whatever I wanted would also just be accepted. And Uh, it was tough. It was definitely tough. But I also just don't really think that it was a thing that began then. It was just a thing, like you said, that's when I started to think about it for myself, instead of just doing what I did and noticing side-eyed glances from (laughs) comments from my peers, like, what are you doing? Why are you doing your hair? Why are you wearing blue mascara? And I was like, why am I not? What's the problem here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think that a lot of people who haven't 
who don't experience what it is to be gender nonconforming or non-binary wrestle a little bit with the idea of is like, do you want to be the other gender, but you're just not willing to transition? Or like, is it that you don't want any genitals at all? Like, I think there are a lot of questions about what that actually means. So what does it mean to you? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't believe in binaries. I can't really exist as a human if they're real and they're not real. Both, I mean, they're not real in as much as construct constructs that we create, like male and female, are made, and that's what makes them real. And apart from that, eh, not so much. But um, also scientifically, biologically speaking, we know that there's a spectrum. There aren't just two points. They get to be in there, <laughs> and people get to still have those identities. But we're hopefully more and more moving away from the false notion that those are the only two options. Yeah. So um, like biologically, we know, I think many people are, are familiar with the idea of intersex, that some people are born with either both sets of genitalia or one presenting and one not presenting or like that's something that people are familiar with, but there's more than just that, that there's not just like male, female, and then somewhere in the middle, there's like a bazillion points on that spectrum that science can show us like this idea that there's just boy and just girl and you're mentally messed up. If you're not one of those is patently scientifically false. Yes. Yes. And it's also super easy um, to fall into the trap of like making it about genitals Mm because gender is a construct. Your body shapes are your body shapes. And apart from, (laughs) I don't know, some Sometimes when we're in the doctor's office, these things are relevant. What our body parts, you know, may or may do where, you know, things like the urethra fall might be relevant (laughs) and you might need different kinds of exams and like heights uh, of scooting your booty up like that. (laughs) That's maybe, you know, relevant sometimes. Um, But goodness gracious, it's just not about the genitals. And, Mm -hmm. um, this idea of like, are you either neither? (laughs) I say yes. And it's not to be, you know, funny. It's because for me personally, my trans fluid identity is such that sometimes I am jazz man. (laughs) And sometimes I'm jazz the girl. And sometimes I'm not any of those things. Um, And that's, that's true whenever it's true. And I know I'm not the only person like that. And then there are trans people for whom it's very different, mm-hmm. um, but like it's not tied to the, to the, the crotch shapes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, um, Let's see. So in your personal timeline, we had gotten up to the first masturbation. (laughs) So let's move forward from there to the first. uh, What was the first experience of engaging with another person? I had a boyfriend when I was like 15 or 16. And um, and we engaged with our bodies together um, at that time. Yeah, I was a sophomore in high school. Meaning you had intercourse with him? Uh. Some of that was intercourse and some of that was other things. 
Okay. Yeah. So engaged with a body to me can include mutual masturbation. And I think that that counts. My first um, penetrative act was anal, not that. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. Was that something that you consciously chose to go to anal first? It was an agreement I made with my partner at the time. And it was something that I consented to. I definitely also think that there were things about that relationship that I look back on and I realized I wasn't, I wasn't really good at bringing negotiation to the table. I was really good at meeting it and like being a fuck yes. Mm. Um, So even though (laughs) as as most first time sexual encounters are like, it wasn't that great. I didn't particularly (laughs) enjoy myself. I do feel like I was a yes to the situation and was engaging in a way that I wanted to with the person that I wanted to do it with. Yeah. So I'm curious about the first time being anal because that unless I know that in some situations where the message is that you have to be a quote unquote virgin until you're married. And so they go to anal sex rather than vaginal sex. Um, Other than that, I'm not familiar with a lot of people choosing anal as their first time. So what brought that about for you? Well, that's, and that's where we come around to like not a strong negotiator at the time, more or less, my partner had a, 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 an extra concern, worry, fear about pregnancy. And so before we were ever going to have vaginal sex with his body parts, I needed to be on birth control even though we were also and always chose to use condoms because mm-hmm. I was a safety girl at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That's basically why it happened. Um, because you can't get pregnant anally as I hope most of your viewers know. And it's okay if you don't, but now you do. <laughs> <laughs> no shame, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. That's basically why it happened. And I, um, as soon as we got, as soon as I, you know, hit my 30 day mark with the birth control, uh, big ups to Planned Parenthood for being discreet and free. Um, I just didn't really do much anal after that. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think, it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There's no single answer that's right for everyone. So I'm going to help you discover what's right for you and we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown while going too slow can be infuriating. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like 
expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM or consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your free, no-obligation discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. I didn't really have another regular sex partner until I was 19. So I went somewhere between like two and a half and three years with basically no contact with other bodies. Good thing I had a vibrator. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about that. Where'd you get your vibrator as a teenager? The first one I got was somewhere down on Christopher street. um, Just one of the many uh, shops that are available. And I sort of ran in and looked around really quick because my friends wouldn't go in with me. And I was also not supposed to be in there. So I was trying to be quick before anyone figured out I was a minor. They didn't card me and I bought an external toy. Uh-huh. And that was my first toy. And then this is where the timeline gets fuzzy. Did I buy the rabbit before or after? I'm pretty sure I bought it after. <laughs> it was more expensive, so I had to save up my babysitting money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Vibrators changed my life, and I became a person who could always orgasm because of them with, with them. And then it was this interesting disconnect between that and like when I would randomly hook up with a person from school. And I I just sort of integrated more media and I didn't have access to porn um, in video style um, outside of like Robin Bird cable access (laughs) stuff. So it was like I would find erotica books at Barnes and Noble or like at secondhand stores, um, thrift, like thrift bookstores and whatnot. And so I would read stuff and then use my vibe or, you know, buy movies that had particularly hot people in them, like Velvet Goldmine, cough, cough, Ewan McGregor, um, (laughs) (laughs) also Tony Collette, (laughs) but you know, just, uh, that's, that's sort of what happened in terms of the evolution. And at what point did you realize that you were interested in multiple types of bodies? Almost exactly at the same point that I started to masturbate. And was that a confusion to you or was it just, did it just feel natural to you that that was who you were? No confusion outside of, I didn't know that femmes and or women identified folk could be into one another Mm -hmm. Um, because of media and growing up again in the nineties Gay was a hot button issue for many, many reasons, but it was still presented as cis, white, and male. Yeah, interesting. I just, it didn't occur to me. And then once it did, like within a few weeks, I was saying to my close friends who I trusted, and I was very lucky to have two friends, one of whom is straight and one of whom is not, maybe 
she would identify as queer or not connected anymore. But they were just like, oh, yeah, you like women. Okay. <laughs> I was like, cool. I don't know what to do with that beyond that, but I'm also now hanging out with kids that are LGBTQ on the weekends. <laughs> so, yeah. So what was your first experience with a female-bodied person? Um, I made out with a girl at a gay party. Her name was Aurora, which I'm not sure if that was a real name, but <laughs> she had really, really pretty eyes and was very gentle in her like demeanor. And that was mm-hmm. more or less all I needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was a good experience. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. very chaste. I had a lot of PG 13 experiences until I started to like have a boyfriend and then it shifted. Once you started having the more R rated experiences, did you ever, that's actually something that I've thought about with myself. Like once you move to R rated activities with a given partner, it's hard to bring them back sometimes to just PG 13. Oh God. I mean, it's like, I'm just getting back to that now. I, yeah. I like, I've been fortunate to have more like encounters and experiences recently that are matching my own like sexual appetite and uh, intimate needs. So I've had to do more elevator pitches and I've started telling people that I masquerade as straight because I love kissing and just normal P and the G uh, vaginal and, and uh, you know, phallic inner intercourse experiences. Like I can really be very, normative in my desires, if you will. Um, which just goes to show that it really is a spectrum. <laughs> like, and it's these the things that we enjoy don't even necessarily need to get wrapped up, you know? And I'm, I'm not just saying that like with an educator hat on, like it's something that I have to tell myself in terms yeah. of really um, feeling at peace with my own desires and what they happen to look like. <laughs> Yeah, I feel very fortunate that after a string of partners with whom once things went R, they never went back. (laughs) I now have a partner who a huge portion of what we do is very PG-13. We spend a lot of time cuddling and Mm -hmm. a lot of time just touching and kissing. It's the best. It really is. I mean, when I, and I said this multiple times on this podcast, uh, PIV, your penis and vagina intercourse is kind of the least frequent thing that we do. And I'm absolutely thrilled about it. <laughs> like I enjoy that, but it's not, it, it's not the thing that we do most. And that's awesome. Yeah. And it's like, that's just, that is one version of normal. It's why normal mm-hmm. is not real. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your sex life is super hot and it is what you just described, you know? Yeah. You mentioned that you now identify as solo poly or single poly. And I think uh, that's going to be a term that a lot of people are not familiar with. So can you, and it's also a term that a lot of people will disagree about the meaning of. So can you talk about what that means to you? Yeah. I mean, all it means to me is that I am poly or non-monogamous oriented in my relationship styles, but I'm not currently in a partnership or relationship that has an official label. Although I I slightly take that back because um, I learned a new term called comet partner. And 
I am technically doing that with someone right now. Um, but it's brand new. It's like three or four months old. And I've never heard that term. What does it mean? It's, it's <laughs> like you don't live together um, slash you don't have a hard and fat live together or live near one another. So like this person is in Canada uh-huh. um, and not the part that's close to New York. <laughs> yeah, not in Toronto. Um, unfortunately, alack, alas. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Common partners are people who you don't have a regular meet time with or um, close proximity to, but the feeling or like level of connectedness, simpatico is is more or less what you would assign to a person that would be a partner if they were. Uh-huh. So are you currently looking for a, what some people would call a nesting partner or an anchor partner or someone who's sort of a primary partner? Or is that even an interest for you? I think I'm a very partner oriented type of human. Um, it may be the only didactic thing about me is that I, <laughs> I do well in pairs, but I also really like triad energy and find that I gravitate towards engaging with couples or being a couple that engages with a third. That was more the first way that I experienced it. Uh, my femme partner and I had a third that became our partner and then we were a triad. Was that person male bodied or female bodied? Yeah, yeah, he was a, of the doodly persuasion. <laughs> and that was a a good meshing of energies for all three of you. It was it was for um for like the honeymoon phase and then sure. when it got, you know, complex, but um yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get so many messages from listeners saying, thank you for the show. I've listened to the whole back catalog and it's helped me completely transform my sex life. Are you one of those people? If so, I'd love to have your support so I can keep growing this show and bringing a new vision of sexuality to the world. If you haven't done it yet, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. I know the podcast industry does not make reviewing a show easy. So go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls, and it should lead you through the process of posting a review. I'd love to get 100 reviews by the end of the year, and I could use your help. And if you have the financial resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be so grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. And... I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are now either illegal or heavily legislated. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And speaking of Patreon... There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free for everyone to listen to. 
You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access it. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a contributor, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. One of the things that I often talk about in these interviews is body image. How has body image uh, affected your experience of sex? Add on top of that for you, the the gender nonconforming piece, like how has your relationship with your body affected your experience of sex? Well, I mean, there was a big portion of my life where I just was like, yeah, I'm a girl. (laughs) And it was always sort of with that ambivalence. Um, But because of my limited understanding of trans identity at the time, I was like, well, I don't want to change things that I have. And I do more or less like the things that I have going on in terms of shapes of body. Uh, so I guess I'm a, a woman and a girl. And and that was just reinforced by everyone in my life in every single way. And so that was very damaging. And that's not anyone's fault. Like the people that I'm close to, the relationships that I've mentioned thus far, like we knew what we did at the time. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I look back on it and I'm just like, wow, I was really just being put into this box that never fucking fit. And as a result, having, I would say, stunted sexual experiences um, or plateaued experiences. Like I feel like I, I found some things that worked that were pleasurable in, you know, with my regular partners and then in like more casual pickup play. But other whole important pieces of myself were just left out. So the, 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 the result, like what happened, how I was impacted is that I was not wholly or truly myself until I would say three years ago. And what happened three years ago? I found a genderqueer partner who was, (laughs) was more clear on what they were seeing me reflect to them than what I was even saying myself. So I would say things and then they would, you know, repeat it back. And I would realize, Oh, I really did just say that I am doing a thing that I don't like because I feel like I have to. And this partner is telling me that they don't care about any of those things. You know, um, I didn't start allowing my chin hair to grow until after I had my fibroid surgery and, you know, with the encouragement of my then partner, they were like, you hate doing this. You hate plucking. And then you get pimples and you get frustrated. Why you know, not, not why are you doing it? Like, I do want to clarify, like there was never pressure and that was mm-hmm. actually part of what was so helpful. There was just frank discussion and like honest reflection of freaking words coming out of our mouths, you know? Um, so, yeah, three years ago, I started dating a genderqueer person, and f- 
for the first time in my life, having those things validated all the time in unexpected little and big ways, you know, in the same way that any, you know, good relationship, you find yourself being validated and you just, you didn't even know that that was something you were looking for. It's like just supportiveness and, and uh, yeah. Yeah. What kinds of responses do you get from the fact that you have chin hair? Um, you know, I'm just going to say the number one response or, or query I get is whether or not I'm on hormones, which mm-hmm. is both an interesting discussion and also really rude. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly invasive and it is next to asking me what my genitals are. You know, I've not lived in a trans body that deals with that question. So I'm not uh, saying they're equivalent, but in terms of invasiveness, privacy, um, over emphasis of genitals to identity. Um, it's the same kind of thing. I, I'm not going to be writing like actually a blog entry about this because I want people to know they don't realize, you know, most of the time the people who ask me are folks who maybe don't have as much experience talking about gender period. So I definitely understand that context, but there've even been a few people who did, who asked and, um, and it's like very much like right away. It's not like we're in a deep discussion. It's like, maybe we've just begun. Um, it's, you know, it would be like finding out someone, you know, can have kids like you, Oh, you're this age and whatever. So like, when are you going to start? You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. that's a cool question. And like, a conversation that I could maybe have, but hello, <laughs> I need some, I need some gender foreplay, some <laughs> gender foreplay before we're getting all deep up in that. But I mean, I also, I have no shame. <laughs> I, I, I am not on hormones and I don't mind telling people that because I think it's really important to recognize that this is a spectrum and there are women identified people who look like me. Mm-hmm. who have facial hair that is uh, seen as more than expected by society. And now it's time for the lowdown, the things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? Uh-huh. one of the ways you can get rid of cramps depending you know on your relationship to your menses can you orgasm from intercourse or strap on sex alone without any other stimulation yes i can orgasm in all kinds of ways including without being touched really Mm -hmm. what does that look like it looks like body convulsions and strange moans. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me ask that question differently. How do you get there I about it? I'm sorry. Of course. Yeah. That's what you meant. So um, <laughs> uh, this is a shout out to Barbara Corellas and um, urban Tantra. I learned about the energy orgasm, which is sort of her framing of tantric techniques that she learned. And um, so there's a couple of ways that you can do that. Sometimes it's literally just like I'll have had physical engagement and stop 
and have an orgasm from that physical touch. And then the orgasm continues on. So that can happen. There's like a squeezing body one. It's called the clench and hold um, that I like to do a lot. And it, you just squeeze all your body parts, your fists, your toes, and then you let go. And um, you can do that. To, I can do that to achieve orgasm. Do you prefer the orgasm from masturbating or from sex with another person? With another person. I've logged in enough hours of solo play. And I, I continue <laughs> to, you know, but <laughs> that extra variable of a whole other brain is just so great. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a threesome or more? <laughs> I've had so many threesomes. I love threesomes. And, you know, technically I, I lived a threesome life when I was in my triad. And I've had more more than that. So in that first year of college, when I, I was already 19, it was the summertime, Burning Man, I had my first fivesome slash um, simultaneous orgasm. I, I started started with... But like setting the bar high. (laughs) (laughs) Do you enjoy group sex? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the things I live for spiritually, energetically, and, and, and my body seems to like it a lot too. Have you ever had public sex? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Usually it's like, you know, an event where there's a space that is reserved. I I have not had, mm, nope, I've definitely had illegal public sex too. I was just sneaky enough to not get caught. <laughs> where was that? Uh, <laughs> uh, once was in a middle school auditorium with another middle schooler because I engage with people legally, <laughs> even when we're both <laughs> underaged. And another time was at a bar burner event (laughs) my uh i've I've only had (laughs) sex in illegal space (laughs) once and it was it, it was very early on it was not something that i wanted to do but i did it anyway and it was in Central Park on a rock that was just off of the path (laughs) yeah public public it was super public. Congrats for not getting busted. The cops can be really harsh in Central Park sometimes. Yeah, it was. I, yeah. I will not say it was non-consensual because I, I said yes to it, but it was not something I wanted to uh, do. Like more on the coercive line. Totally. Yeah, totally coercive. Yeah, I'm sorry. That. Uh, but it makes a great story, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, not that I would ever suggest anybody do something you don't want to do just for the story. Exactly. Jazz, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I'm grateful for the chance to speak in a real way and tell my own story. Um, and, um, yeah, in a lot of ways, this title is throwing me for a loop, you know? because uh, I don't identify as a girl anymore, but it is nice to be welcomed into it and also be able to tell like my life when that was real. Cause it, it's, it still feels like it's a part of me, even if it wasn't the right story or even if it was some kind of weird stop along the way that never quite fit. It's, it's there. Well, thank you.
That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.